You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in. What I am good at is being the co-founding CEO alongside a scientist or an engineer. Um, I know how many works. I know how to yeah put together the the commercial premise of a business, but to hopefully do so with both the sort of like anthropological bridge building of like who is this science for? How does it meet the real world? And a lot of the like innovation and innovation culture rigor of these are all humans and people. These people aren't spreadsheets. They don't behave like spreadsheets. You can see, I think a lot of the that expressed in our brand is very visible despite being a relatively uh, immature company. Um, and so in this case, that was alongside, did that to a prior founding role, sold that in 2020. And now Yardstick is that same thing. It's science commercialization. It just happens to be in a domain that I've never looked at before. I had never thought about soil carbon before I met my now co-founder, a guy named Kevin and a soil scientist who did a lot of the original academic research. But because I'm the business guy, I'm not the ideas guy, right? Like I'm I'm inheriting somebody else's science vision and saying, hey, how do we how do we bring this into the real world? That's still fundamentally a design activity, a design behavior, a sort of design thinking worldview, even though I'm definitely not, you know, pushing pixels or I'm not in SolidWorks. Um, I try and be cool and like I talk to my hardware co-founder, like I can hang in a machine shop. And I could probably hang more than the average uh, business guy CEO, but he knows I'm a poser. So he's kind to uh, indulge me. Yeah, that's cool. I feel like you uh, have found a really good uh, niche there um, or role. It, to me, it seems like you need innovation and then you need the distribution of that. And of course, to distribute yeah. it, you have to have the operations of a business yeah. and commercialization, that piece. And that's where you're saying like, hey, I'm that. Yeah, you guys have totally. the science, you have the innovation. Now let's make sure we bring it to the world because unfortunately, sometimes that great science just sits there and it doesn't get distributed, right? Yeah, and usually, in fact, yeah. And you know, there's a whole separate conversation here about like the business model of academia and what they incentivize. Um, suffice to say, like very few people who ever get a PhD, even from a super duper fancy school like Harvard down the street from me right now, ever get taught anything about what's outside the walls. And there are some good exceptions, obviously, um, but whatever vocab fits for you, you know, inspiration and execution, there's this incredible horsepower, uh, especially within academia in the US. Um, and then it gets to the point of being able to be a thing and the system sort of falls apart. Uh, and so I'm trying to be a bridge builder between that great science and the real world, which is where impact happens, right? Like papers are powerful, patents are powerful, um, but they're largely a means to an end, which is in to, to inspire behavior in the real world, whether that's a product or a service or a piece of policy. Um, and what I'm trying to do is be one of the folks trying to get stuff from that former category outside of the walls of the institution. Yeah. The real world. And I feel like it's more important today than ever before, because in the past, there's a lot of different science that could come out and benefit people in different ways. But we've got some massive problems that we're trying to deal with anything related to climate, we don't want that sitting around on the shelf for 20 years before someone says, oh, should we put that into play? And totally. so I feel like there's this uh, pace that we need to be able to identify it, commercialize it, get it out there, whether it's because we got to get out there because it's a long-term play or it's more just short-term mitigation, whatever it ends up being. Like, I feel like that's a real thing. And there's so many obstacles and stumbling blocks along the way that could stunt that thing from being you know, accessible to people or put in the place. 
Totally. Yeah. I think the only thing I, I might disagree with is whether anything's actually different right now or whether like white people of means, namely myself, are just sensitized to the existential problem, right? There have been like uh, like unbelievably horrible problems in the world since time immemorial. I just think climate is a great example of one where white people with money are feeling the pain. And so like, oh shit, it's obvious, you know, to Chris Tolles, um, in a way that other big problems have been very obvious to other groups of people. And uh, is just the first time where I feel threatened or I think that my descendants are threatened. And so I'm motivated to do something. It's, it's a problem that someone put a number on and said, hey, we need to have progress by 2030 or 2050. Totally. The other problems that you've mentioned yep. didn't get that labeled as well. And so now totally. there's a more awareness Yep. for that. And there, it feels like now we have to expedite things, right? To me, that's yeah, what totally. I would say is the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would still argue like, why were those other problems not as visible in the past is inseparable from power and money. Um, but absolutely agree. The visibility of just how bad it's going to be, the specificity of just how bad it can get, how much faster it's going to get so much worse than we expect uh, I think is a, is absolutely strongly agreed a key motivator for trying to ensure that a lot of this stuff gets out there both as quickly as possible and robustly as possible because we have these dueling tensions, right? We got to go fast and we got to do a good job. And humanity has shown a great capacity for solving one problem with another. Um, I don't pretend to have a great answer to that, uh, but at the very least, I'm encouraged that there are more folks that agree that this is uh, a central thing to be spending time on. Yeah. Your background is in design, and that is not always the common background for a person in your role to have. But you can point to other brands that people know well. Airbnb pops in my mind as a group yep. that was very design centric. Two out of days. three founders were RISD people for the record. There you go. There you go. Do you, do you, uh, you clearly see the benefits of it, and I'm sure people around you do. Uh, what are the more surprising benefits of that background i mean you probably also could point out like yeah but i'm i'm still maybe a little weaker in this area and working on it but what are some of the maybe surprising points where you feel like your organizations have this benefit because that type of design thinking gets put in place early on versus later on yeah so i have i have one example that definitely applies to yardstick and one that doesn't so much but i think is important uh anyway uh the first is Yardstick is a tough business because this is market creation. Like there are not, there's not $50 billion a year of soil carbon measurement spend going on in the world today. Our thesis is that there could be, and there will be, especially as we solve the problem of cost. But nonetheless, like I can't point to spend today. I think designers do a, an exceptionally above average job of stakeholder mapping, and especially in like complex multi-stakeholder uh, markets, understanding who's my paying customer, who's my user, who influences, how does policy play in here? How is community part of the conversation? Um, if you are trying to sell like a better tool for email marketing, like, of course you have to figure that out, but like, you can look at a half dozen existing email marketing tools and be like, oh, okay. So brands have this and they employ this kind of person market creation. You don't have that map. You can't look at other companies. So the burden on an organization to imagine a future that actually happens by observing today's motivations is really tough. It's tough work. It's just, it's very difficult. Um, 
it, it's, uh, you know, I'm not confident that we're, we're doing it right. <laughs> and uh, in my experience, designers um, and design can mean a lot of different things, but uh, particularly in my world of like design eth as ethnographer, do a great job of sort of being like, oh, you, what do you care about? And how does that compare to this person over here? That's less the like make a really pretty product kind of design, but that's not really my kind of design anyway. And that squarely uh, describes Yardstick. The one that doesn't describe Yardstick is that I think design is unbelievably powerful in commoditized markets uh, because user experience can be a huge differentiator. So Airbnb is a great example where like VRBO actually existed for like quite some time before Airbnb and after Airbnb. And VRBO has gotten kind of better. I think you're supposed to pronounce it verbo now. But like I used Airbnb exclusively for many years simply because like in a world where all the same places are listed on both platforms, Airbnb isn't a shitty interface. <laughs> like helps me get my job better. And so that's sort of the opposite kind where like people disparage design as like just making things look pretty. And I think that obscures the deeper opportunity, which is that customer experience can be centrally differentiating in a world where the product itself is arguably less differentiated. Um, imagine, you know, imagine your PCP was not a miserable uh, interface experience, right? There's a lot of PCPs that could probably do the job. Some people care hugely about the specific doctor they're meeting. Some people are like, golly day, just like give me, give me my, my well visit. Um, design is an amazing opportunity uh, in markets, which is a substantial part of our economy where the underlying product or service itself is not meaningfully differentiated. It's very mature. Yeah. If if someone was asked me what's the value of design, because that's my background as well, and in some ways, I guess you would say UX design a little bit more. So, but I would say it's really easy to think in systems. You can kind of visualize yeah. these complex things and kind of walk around with it floating in your brain, your mind's yep. eye, which yep. I think can be useful. I think you just have a natural empathy to the end user and yeah. you're very curious about that. Yep. I think design also teaches you prioritization. Like that's mm. not important. That's like visually, like the visual exercise of that smaller, that's the headline, that type of thing. Like yeah, you're doing that constantly. Yep. yep. And when you're in a conversation, you're like, that's not a headline, you know? So yeah. <laughs> that, that would be the stuff that I would rattle off right off the top. And it's a, it's an important skill set. Uh, I do think it's underappreciated in a lot of business, unfortunately. Oh yeah. And, and particularly in climate where, uh, there's a whole bunch of tech uncertainty for climate, right? There's a lot of original science that has to happen. Absolutely. Nonetheless, if I looked at the total set of climate solutions and asked myself, um, what is the relative allocation of resources between like the science and tech part of the problem versus the cultural sociological aspect of the problem? The latter is like impoverished, terrifyingly so. Terrifyingly so. It's uncontroversial to put $200 million behind a fusion power startup because like, wow, think of all the science they have to do and unlimited zero carbon energy. That's transformative. It, it, it would be a big deal to put $5 million behind um, an anthropology of how community and energy intersect, right? And even like those words, like what the hell did I just say? Like, I'm not even really sure what I just said, right? Like, I don't even really know what that means, but- Think about where all energy is consumed. It's consumed in community by real people. I don't know if you've ever tried to change your electricity service provider, but like there's a whole world of like services and experiences and interactions 
that are non-technological in nature are not primarily about science or tech risk. And in climate, I'm so excited that there's so much money chasing after the science risk, which absolutely has to get, get beaten down. But especially working in a sector like agriculture, many of the cultural of agriculture barriers are arguably more significant than the tech uncertainty. And so every time a designer shows up with the customer empathy, the user empathy, the curiousness to say like, tell me about yourself. Like, why does this matter to you? Why does it make you feel that way? I get, I get real psyched, even if they have zero PhDs. It's you're touching on why we do this podcast, which is, I feel like on this front, the, the hard sciences are tough enough, but I feel like the thing that should not be the hardest thing, I think, in my opinion, one of the hardest things is just us humans find ways to screw stuff up and we do it through miscommunication, bad messaging, not yep. understanding uh, yep. kind of the values that we hold and the and where those where that Venn diagram crosses and where yep. it doesn't, and so you can take a great science and completely flub it up in the way that it gets rolled out or the way it gets messaged or talked about. And so that's Absolutely. kind of what this podcast is: is to find yep. those connection points and help people understand something. Because again, a lot of the problem, the bigger problem that we're trying to talk about there's a lot of science involved. People don't really like to learn that much about science. A common person doesn't. No. And so the more that we can have educated conversations about it, what we're trying to accomplish, I think the, the better. don't require that I think is, is essential. Yeah, totally. And, and I, uh, three examples come to mind immediately when, when you start to describe the, the risk of that disconnection. So one is a very cool company doing um, carbon removal by way of oceans. And the technical details don't matter. We can include some links in the show notes if, if folks want to follow the rabbit trail. But basically, they were doing a trial of their approach in Cornwall in England. And Greenpeace got all riled up and local residents were like, what the hell? Basically, like, are you going to like poison our ocean? And they're like, no, this is like, this is like inarguably like, like, no, like we're so like to them. And, and, and this is what caught them flat footed is it was like, it was so obvious to them how overwhelming the safety data was that they were caught flat footed, right? That's a communication and a community engagement challenge that ultimately like really imperiled the the, the project and, and potentially the company. I mean, obviously that's not the only location they're doing it, uh, but it was a big deal for, for a hot minute. Um, there are companies that are focused on carbon removal, especially uh, so Louisiana and uh, New Orleans had a very controversial bill that basically I'm, I'm overgeneralizing again. Let's let's put some links in the show notes to tell the truth. But like there was a bill that was basically like we should ban carbon removal because it, it's just a fig leaf for oil and gas. And like, wow, like maybe. And also like IPCC says we need it. So how do I square these things? Um, in, in yardsticks world, you know, we work in agriculture and I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which like is different from like, let's say much of the agricultural land of America. Who the hell am I to like try and design something that agricultural establishment cares about, believes in, will advance. That's a cultural communication risk. That's a marketing and messaging risk. Um, especially because I don't live in Iowa, right? Like we employ people who who do, or they live next to Iowa. So of course, there's always ways to address this. But um, I consider myself in the category of people who are sensitized to the risk that there is a communication and a community breakdown here, uh, even if I don't have a great answer. And man, do I meet a lot of founders that like, I think don't even really appreciate that that is an existential threat to what they're trying to do. Uh, absolutely. I mean, especially if you're coming out of like you said, if you're coming out of Berkeley, Berkeley or Cambridge and you've got a fantastic science that the whole world needs, 
but yet you show up. And the world's been telling you that you're God. Like, yeah. like you get a postdoc at Harvard, like rightly so. You you kind of think you're hot shit, and that doesn't yep. even necessarily mean that like you've got an ego. You could be like a very humble person, but like no farmer has ever slapped you around and been like, you don't know anything about agriculture the way that they've come very close to to slapping me around. You could walk, you could go into um, a conference trade show, something like that, have a talk. You could put the S word in there and say sustainability. There's not many people there who go, I'm going to go to that sustainability talk. In fact, yeah. there's people who will walk out of it. Now yeah. you can be, now you can be upset about that, but it's just the reality. Now yep. you could you could frame it's all about framing. Frame it completely different. How do we make this farm a generational farm? Yep. Totally. I'm listening. And it's just a different framing. And, yeah, and you have to you're understand speaking to the their values. interest. And if you don't speak to other people, if you don't speak to your audience interests, like you won't accomplish anything. And if you don't know your audience, you can't know their interests. And if you're not in community with your audience, you can't know them. Mm -hmm. That's it, hard. a lot of it comes from a, a lot of the um and this is true anywhere you go in the world, but you sometimes have to look at the long history leading up to now to understand why are the value systems the way they are. If you do that work, it starts to make sense and you do have a lot more empathy because you realize, oh, that value system isn't bullshit. There's actually good reasons for that. And I was yep. unaware. And Absolutely. unfortunately, nobody does that work because again, yep. it's work. Yep. Um, but that's the, there's a reason why things the way they are. And sometimes it's justified. Especially when, again, you live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which like is just going to be an echo chamber of like this coastal elite, like farmers are stupid. They don't believe in climate change because they listen to Fox News. Like that's that's a recipe for disaster because ultimately, like we share a country and a globe <laughs> like some of those things, of course, are true in individual examples, but like there's people in Cambridge, Massachusetts that like watch Fox News and like don't believe in climate change. Like every time the anti-climate change, you know, uh, effort come out, they always point to the one scientist at MIT who, who like says it's not anthropogenic. Right. So these sort of like broad strokes, especially when they come with like cultural sneering and like coastal sneering is just anathema. It's so destructive. It's so, it's seductive too, though. Like I, 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 I point to that attitude because I feel it within myself, not because I am like immune from it, but man, I'm trying to pay attention to that because I think it's likely to wreck us. Yeah. If you can somehow find a way to float between both eco chambers and you realize kind of the absurdity of both of them. And that's kind of the life I live, uh, which yeah. is again, why I try to be a bridge between, because I can float in one circle and then move over to the other circle and I can explain things to even things they don't want to hear. Yep. Um, but, but again, you, you in choose your words carefully. You get, yeah. And you do it in community and you get listened to, right? Like no one's going to listen to me when I fly to o o Iowa and be like, trust me, everybody, this is the way you should behave. And I can only live in Cambridge, right? Like, so it begs the question of like, how do I be in community with somebody in Iowa? If I have something to say to them, that's what's hard about it. Um, and largely yardstick solves that uh, with different people, right? So our, our field team is the best example of, of this. They are like squarely part of our technology team and they are just as much a, a, a science-led team as the rest of the company. But the people who work there have credibility in that community. Many of them are from there. Many of them are still from there proudly, right? Like they, they love our mission, but like they also love the corner of Minnesota that they live in, you know? Uh, those things aren't opposites to them because they exist in that culture with credibility 
and uh, and love. And I I can't do that. And so I'm grateful to be able to rely on them to do that uniquely within the company. And it behooves me as a leader in the company to listen to them <laughs> when they're telling me about their people, their culture. Uh, yeah. That's the that's the power combo, which is so hard to do. And again, I don't pretend like we at Yardstick do it necessarily all that well much of the time, but I think I at least have um, a, a pretty, I'm encouraged to feel like I have a vision for how that could be the case and I want to pursue it. Yep. We've kind of bypassed one little talking point that we should probably back up and do for people who are listening. Um, and let's talk a little bit about Yardstick because we're getting yeah. into the oh, good right. stuff. We're, <laughs> we're getting into such good stuff. I don't want to get off of it, but let's back up and talk a little bit about Yardstick uh, just so everybody listening who can follow along with that. Let's start by how you describe it to people outside the industry. If someone's, if you're having drinks with somebody and they're like, Yardstick, tell me about it. How do you, how can I break it down to them? Yep. So we measure soil carbon. There are ways to farm that have negative climate impacts and ways to farm that have positive climate impacts or some variation there in between. By measuring soil carbon, we help people figure out, oh, that's really good or that's really bad. Uh, in Boston, there's a lot of folks that work in healthcare. So like point of care diagnostics for the farm tends to resonate. Um, ultimately, soil carbon stocks are a really important pool of stored atmospheric CO2, right? Plants consume CO2. That's good. We have too much of it in the air. <laughs> How do we get plants to store as much of it as they possibly can? The classic bathtub metaphor is great. We got to open the spigot. We want to increase the rate at which any plant including trees for the record, can sequester atmospheric CO2. And then we want to close the drain a little bit. We want to reduce the rate at which, especially management practices, ways of farming, reduce soil carbon stocks. Because we want it to be big, same way we want to preserve rainforests and plant trees. So in a forest, the soil carbon stock is often actually larger than the above or below ground biomass stock. And we're a diagnostic tool that helps folks understand, hey, what's going on with the bathtub? Yep. And can you talk a little bit about the kind of business model that you've helped put together with this science uh, as you've gotten involved? So in the U.S., uh, which is our only active commercial market right now, though, uh, God willing, that'll change in, in 2024, we are a service. So our customers hire us on a per acre basis to do the measurement work. We make a piece of hardware. It looks like a big ass hand drill. We can put a link to that in the show notes if folks are curious. Um, but we don't sell those probes. We don't sell spectrometers, which is the, the, the name of the technology. We sell measurement services. So farmer Justin, or more precisely, food brand Justin's Snacks has a supply chain. They're trying to understand the climate impact of their supply chain. Uh, they hire us to go visit your suppliers. Uh, to use a non-hypothetical example, Organic Valley is a customer. Organic Valley has done the math and realized, oh, wow, 80 to 90% of my emissions are scope three. They're from within my agricultural supply chain. It's not my office <laughs> that's driving my impact. That means I got to press down on my supply chain. I got to say, hey, dairies, how do I get me some low carbon intensity milk? Um, to do that, your six is going to come along. They're going to measure soil carbon stocks. We're going to change the management practices. We're going to come back in five years. We're going to see how those stocks have changed. Organic Valley is hiring me on a per acre basis to visit their dairies, to do a baseline, and then to come back in the future and see how things have changed. Yep. And then in the early days, when you're meeting some of those early partners, early clients, customers, um, what was the conversation like? Like, how did you describe sort of your value prop or, or were you proactively sort of presenting that? Were they pulling you in saying, oh, we desperately need this? Like, what did those conversations look like? 
Yeah. So um, I, we were doing like co-founder dating in fall 2020, uh, which was also me like diligencing the company. And so for a solid six months, it was like crystals at gmail.com, like emailing random ass people. Um, and that was intentional because like, if they'll reply to that email, like, yeah. like chances are, you know, they'll, they'll reply to the next one when you're a little more credible. Um, and so in those contexts, since I was brand new to soil carbon uh, and still am, of course, in many ways, it was mostly just like, here's a technology that can measure soil carbon better. Better means cheaper and easier. Like, why do you care about soil carbon measurement? <laughs> Uh, and it's a classic, like you, you ask open-ended questions, right? It's like, tell me about your business and how soil carbon measurement is an important part of it. It's not like, I would like you to vote yes or no, this is interesting. Um, it's again, that more like ethnographic uh, approach. But ultimately, since the technology I was looking at could only really do a narrow thing, which is like measure soil carbon better. Eventually I had to be like, why is cheaper more valuable? Why is easier more valuable? And then people are always polite. And so they'll usually tell you like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. But then you just, you play the five wise game. And usually you can smell, especially if, if this is sort of your, your expertise, which it is mine, you can smell whether people are just being polite or whether they really want your thing. Um, and so it was probably like 60% trying to understand the landscape, trying to understand their business more broadly. And then 40% more specifically. Yeah. 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 But if, if you say this is a good idea, like convince me about why it's a good idea. And that's still the case because in this example I just gave of Organic Valley, in the biz, we would call that like insetting or scope three work. But like we have customers that do like very different kinds of work with soil carbon measurement. So for every Organic Valley, there's a Trutera or a South Dakota State University or a Clear Frontier. And I don't expect you to know who these organizations are, but the point is they're not food brands. So even while we're encouraged that measuring soil carbon is an important part of lots of different organizations' efforts, the specific way that they value it is quite materially different. And so we still have an ongoing segmentation and ethnography effort um, because our thesis is, hey, I got a thing that matters to a whole bunch of different people, which means I want to be constantly learning about all the different people who are out there telling me that they think it's a good idea. Yeah. Do you, uh, um, maybe getting into far here, but I'm, I'm assuming there's so many new technologies and new options being presented to brands right now, do you ever feel like they are just looking to the first credible solution that might help whatever scope that they're on or whatever impact they're measuring against? Or do you feel like they've already sort of said, I we've already figured out like this is the category or type of solution that we're going to need? Because I've heard a mixed bag. There's times where it's like, oh, we need to help on that front. We didn't know where it was going to come from, but they presented this option. We're going to go for it. Yep. Like, where, where do you feel like they're at typically when they meet you? Yeah. So this is market creation. So it's still early days, which means most folks don't know what they need. Right. There are some in that second category, but they're just the early adopters who were asking these first questions three years ago instead of instead of right now. Um, that said, um, one of our types of customers are selling offsets. And offsets have a checkered, to be generous, history particularly when one is talking about avoided conversion in forestry. That's some like industry jargon that doesn't really matter. It's a very specific type of forestry carbon project development. And it has rightly been dragged by like every major news outlet in the world, including like long form investigative articles from The Guardian, front page of Bloomberg Businessweek a year and a half ago. Um, now, as someone operating in the sector, I can give you 17 reasons why the soil carbon project development of today is night and day 
from any of these forestry projects that have been criticized. And like they are, they're like completely different. Nonetheless, forestry and soil both exist in this bucket of nature-based solutions. And no, there are very few experts in the world. So most folks are like Googling nature-based solutions and they're like, oh, wow, is this all junk? Is this all fraud? So even if Organic Valley has gotten expertise, which they have, Organic Valley knows that Organic Valley's audience is reading these articles and is thinking real carefully about how to disambiguate the thing that Bloomberg criticized, the thing that The Guardian criticized from what, what we're doing. That means there's a lot of hackles raised on measurement, which is good for us because our whole value plot prop is, is rigorous measurement. Um, I'd say, yeah, 80% of our audience has already been socialized to some of the risk of doing crummy measurement, but only 15% of that 80 can really go toe to toe with us in terms of the technical requirements. Yeah. So there's a ton of customer education. And as soon as you say customer education, I just see like stacks of hundred dollar bills being lit on fire. Uh, Cause it just takes a while. Right. So this is not like sign up now SaaS product. This is highly individualized B2B, high touch selling, written proposals, ton of background, uh, which is fun because it's part of the learning, but also means uh, our sales process is is complicated and expensive, yeah. which is obviously a thing we'll have to figure out uh, as we grow. Education's expensive, no matter what type yeah. you're talking about. Um, yeah, totally. I assume- and, well, and, and thankfully, like a lot of our education has already been done, right? Like our customers already believe in soil carbon as a solution. I'm grateful that others have done that education work. And now I get to talk about the thing that I have expertise in, which is measurement. But every day I'm like, man, it would be great if like this were just another email client, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, you can go work on something boring if you want. That's the nature of the beast is a lot of these is market creation, right? A lot of these have like fun, unique, interesting, but therefore quite challenging uh, customer education timeline contexts. Yeah, you briefly mentioned this early on in our conversation, but you have invested in brand development and the, the messaging and the way that you sort of portray Yardstick. Um, is that something that you would do no matter what the case is? Or did you- I can't not. You just I can't have not. to, right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't not. And I know how to do it pretty affordably. Like right. I can write. Our value prop is rigor, right? So like we got to be buttoned up, right? Like the way you show up visually matters. I also know that I- have a very conversational and transparent and candid communication style. And like, that's not going to change. So I knew it would be important to have my, because I'd be interacting directly personally with a whole bunch of customers. I wanted that to kind of be in contrast to the sort of like, yeah, put together. Uh, it's a fun brand. It's not boring, I think, but like it's it's professionally executed. Um, but more importantly, as you suspect, I'm a RISD person. I can't not. It's got to, it's got to be pretty. It's possible to do pretty on a budget. Um, and that served us really well because many folks also assume that we're more sophisticated than we actually are. So they come in with sort of a, uh, I mean, you could argue that that's a bad thing as well, but it means I think our, our brand story, uh, reinforces our premise that like, we're trying to show up with professionalism. Yeah. I think it's, it, it, it does two things. I think one just design alone, I think to me says that somebody has paid attention and yeah. I think subconsciously it makes you want to pay attention too. like someone paid attention to this. So maybe Love I that. should too. Yeah. And then two, it's amazing who will respond to an email uh, when you have a, when you present well, right? Totally. 
totally. It just, yeah. it just eases that. It eases that. Yep. I mean, people, yep. people have asked me many times, what's the value of a brand? I was like, I don't know. Are you frustrated that people don't answer your calls and emails? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, what if they, <laughs> well, what if they did answer them? There you go. <laughs> answer your own question. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, another thing for us is uh, like fully one third of companies in our sector have the word carbon in their name or like agra somewhere in their name so it just just being a distinct noun i think is i i can't measure this of course or i could but it would not be the best use of resources i'm highly confident that we're a lot more top of mind just because we have a pretty distinct name <laughs> well i was talking with the guy yesterday and he said we're the only group in our sector that doesn't have the word eco green or a leaf yes. in our logo love it said, yes. yeah so it's so, so true wisdom wisdom <laughs> yeah. I thought the point was to differentiate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what Love are that. the, uh, what are the, are there any misperceptions that you still run into when you're talking with potential partners or clients that you're like, you know, I wish this one was resolved. I wish mm -hmm. this one was not a misperception I had to explain away in conversations. Yeah. So I'll try and hit a few quickly and we can, we can talk about it in even more detail if you want. Uh, one is a lot of the carbon removal conversation has been dominated by these organizations, Stripe and Frontier, and they are like a thousand year durability or don't bother. I think that's like not helpful criteria. It's important, but it's just not as important as they perceive. So uh, largely nature-based solutions are on the heat on, on the back foot in a lot of conversations, just because Frontier has done an amazing job of being very visible. Um, I, I want Frontier to succeed. I want high durability carbon removal. I also want stuff like anytime in the next 15 or 20 years. So the, kind of the unique role of nature-based solutions is definitely um, underappreciated right now. Um, another is because there's been all this controversy, a lot of folks come in with like categorical conclusions, like you can't measure soil carbon. And I'm like, well, hang on. <laughs> like we could argue about like whether you can measure it affordably or at scale or quickly, but like, that's just like objectively false. Um, so of course, I wish there were more nuance of like, what are the specific problems in measurement rather than this like broad strokes? And a lot of that comes back to culture and this sort of like engineering mind. And like, if it's not, you know, a machine, I can't possibly understand it. And like trees are understandable, um, even if they're not machines. They may need to be understood with different tools, but like they're understandable. Um, a third is uh, that Yardstick is only focused on offsets, uh, maybe a little too in the weeds for, for some of this audience, but um, we're not. Like offsets are important and, and they're also like part of the total set of solutions. One of our customers is a land fund. They buy crummy soils and they do soil regeneration. Like that, like that, that's not offsets. Like they are a totally different economic premise. One of our biggest customers is just a research university who needs better tools to answer the fundamental science questions of like, Hey, what works? We're on six USDA Climate Smart Commodities Awards, which are just research projects to help us understand what works in soil carbon, what doesn't. Um, I don't object to offsets when they're done well. Our customers are folks that are pushing the limit, um, but definitely chafe at the idea that we're we're YOLO offsets uh, to the um, to the uh, ignorance of uh, other ways that soil carbon data is valuable. Yeah, well, one of your points you mentioned earlier, I feel like. One of the things that we can get wrong easily is just thinking about the role that each solution has and we have different time horizons for each one and yep. we can't there isn't going to be one magic bullet it's like yep. use all the bullets and, yep. and and think about different time horizons and and then sometimes things get so easily categorically labeled as not effective and then done yep. 
Yep. No more, no more nuance to the conversation. Totally. Totally. And like that is, um, I know that frontier thinks that they're doing a fair job of putting their preference in context. And like, I don't know. I think you can just kind of like, you know, a tree by its fruit, like their, their rebuttal would be like, well, you got to focus on something. And like, that's true. Also, like, I think there's a little more like pre-competitive consensus building here where uh, we can do a better job of acknowledging the unique role of each of these things. Um, I don't want to single them out, uh, but they're, they're visible and they're a source of a lot of this like durability is everything conversation. They're not wrong about it being one important criteria. Um, and, you know, these aren't suited to like 140 character conversations, which is where a lot of this happens in like the climate Twitter uh, echo chamber. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I wish there I wish there were a, a broader conversation around what what are the performance criteria that matter and which solutions perform excellently across which. And then how do you, as you point out, like pursue all of them appropriately that's an abundance mindset. Like we can chew gum and walk at the same time. We really can. Um, and I think we're, we're trying to get too narrow too soon before there's a lot of fundamental science questions that are unanswered for any of these solutions. Pre-competitive consensus. That's probably a phrase I'm going to sit and think about yeah. for a day or so. That's interesting. Yeah, there's more of it not, in this space than any other, but totally, it's still totally. Yeah. And, and, and like, we all share a mission. So like, People that, again, no disrespect to the email marketers of the world, but like two different companies that make email marketing software, like, yeah, they kind of share a mission, but like, is it like a deep one? <laughs> like, probably not. It's like, I want to like sell more things on the internet, right? Which is not bad. Not bad. I buy things on the internet all the time. I'm glad people sell things on the internet. But one hopes that in climate, you look across the aisle and you're like, Dak and Soil, same team, same team. And, and again, to be clear, like, I won't pretend like I show up well. I, 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 you know, hey, if you're a DAC person listening to this conversation and you're like, hey, Chris, you should stop being a dick to DAC people. Like, please, I welcome that feedback. Uh, I'm trying to be the kind of person that says, like, we really do need each of these things to perform in the way that yeah. they perform uniquely. Well, that leads me to, I think, a, a good question to kind of wrap on, which is like, what do you, I was going to say, what do you see and forecast for your corner of the industry? But maybe I should frame it differently. What's your wish? Like, where do you hope mm. and wish and work every day to make sure it's going? That's a great question. Um, I think I wish two things. Um, one uh, is I think that the problems of climate change and the problems of this like mishmash of like, later stage capitalism, white supremacy, power, reinforcing power are like both existential. And again, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> so uh, what I, my wish is that we have a growing cohort of folks that even if one can't be actively working on both of those at the same time, are at least willing to be participating in a conversation about both of them at the same time. Because it's a classic scenario of like, I, I don't really believe this statement, but it's evocative of like, if you're not part of the solution, you know, you're part of the problem, um, especially in a sector like mine, where it's like a lot of white men and CEO roles. Like if, if you're not really paying attention to that second bucket, like you're kind of out to lunch in some key ways, even if you're doing quote unquote, a great job on the climate stuff. So that's number one is I want, I think to, to, to TLDR it, I want more white men 
paying better attention to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, and the second is what inspires me. Uh, one thing that inspires me about soil is to some of our prior conversation, it has this opportunity of a pretty cool cultural political judo move in the US, especially where the premise of anthropogenic climate change is, is still um, controversial. Our primary science collaborator is an organization called the Soil Health Institute. And they pointed out that they're called the Soil Health Institute and not the Soil Carbon Institute for a reason. Um, one of those reasons is that like, they actually believe with evidence that like soil health is the higher goal and like carbon is the co-benefit, right? You know who cares about soil health? <laughs> like uh, anybody who farms, right? Um, Multi-generational farms, right? You said it yourself a, a few minutes ago, soil erosion. How much, you know, expensive imported fertilizer do you really want to have to apply? How much tillage do you really want to have to do? All of a sudden, there's cool ways of having a conversation where soil health and soil carbon aren't perfectly overlapping on a Venn diagram, but like, man, is that a big overlap? And I'm inspired to be part of a movement, a small part, but a, an important part, God willing, nonetheless, where we can advance climate solutions on soil by appropriately focusing on a potentially higher level goal of preservation and restoration of agricultural capacity, right? That's a national security thing. Even if you don't, even if all you care about, even if you're just like a national security hawk, like what do you need to do? Feed your people, right? That's what I find just so inspiring. And I don't pretend to, you know, the whole point, right, is that I don't have those tools by myself, uh, but I see the opportunity in collaborating with folks like this, this amazing scientist, Christine Morgan at, at the Soil Health Institute, by being in community with my team members that are from and live in the Midwest or other agricultural communities, by working with customers who themselves, of course, participate in, in the agricultural economy deeply. That's where I want to get. I want to get to a point where um, folks see what's in it for them um, and the thing itself is actually like materially the same thing coast to coast. Hey everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series and we've put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.